Hello and welcome to Behind the Scenes with Colin Edmonds, a podcast in which I talk about my life and career as a successful comedy writer in British television. I'll also talk about my interests and inspirations and chat with the occasional guest. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to share it and give us a five-star review. To find out more about me or to order any of my books, please check out my website. All the links are in the podcast notes. And I hope you enjoy this week's episode. This week's guest is the epitome of behind the scenes. He's a gentleman who possesses, I would contend, the best known voice in the country. His were very often the dulcet tones we woke up to reading the news on Radio 2's Wake Up to Wogan and beyond. He was who the man Terry dubbed the voice of the balls on the Saturday Night National Lottery Live Draws shows. And he is the stentorian announcer on Strictly Come Dancing, the man who says, the judges' scores are in, only infinitely better than that. <laughs> Please welcome the vocal legend that is Alan Dedicote. Colin, you're very, very kind. Um, I've just, just been very lucky. Um, I, I was blessed with a voice uh, that people seem to like. Uh, there was a, a, a survey done at one point in my career uh, and it was deemed to be one of the most trustworthy voices. Now, only you know the truth, but <laughs> but apparently it's it's a voice. It's a voice you can trust, uh, and that's one of the reasons that they gave me uh, jobs like the lottery. I'm still doing the lottery, by the way. I appear on uh, most Saturday nights on ITV now. Uh, I've swapped channels, of course, at you least. Do. Uh, yeah, so I'm so I'm still doing that one, and strictly. But I yes, I I've. Um, I think I've peaked, Colin. To be honest, I think oh. I've peaked. But I, uh, but the thing is, you know, I've been so lucky along the way, as we'll probably sort of find out during this sort of chat we're going to have. But I've been in the right place at the right time on a number of occasions, and there was no planning involved. It just happened, uh, and it's mm. all happened for me perfectly. You mentioned, you know, the guy I used to call the greatest living Irishman, and you know, it, it was I had twenty some odd years with that man. Uh, and I don't regret a minute of it, I have to say. I enjoyed every single moment. Uh, a lot of it we couldn't actually broadcast, but we were in fits of laughter for various reasons most mornings. Mm. But um, it, was just, it was just a joy, joy to work with, mm. as was Bob, because that's how I got to know you, working yeah. with Bob Monkhouse, you know, uh, who taught me an awful lot uh, about the business, I have to say, because Bob was the only person, in a way, who ever exploited the liveness Hmm. Of, uh, of 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 the lottery. So I've just just been very. I've, I've met some very nice people, and you. Oh, yes. <laughs> always, always, always the barb in the tail, in the, the sting in the tail. <laughs> oh, old come on, you love it. You love it. You love it. <laughs> but, you, but you talk about luck, and I bang on about my luck as well. But I would defend your luck. You make your own luck, don't you? You make your own luck by working hard. But I think the trick is to recognise the fortunate. Your, the position you're being offered and then capitalising upon it, not letting it slip through your, your fingers like sand. You, you, you've got to be a professional enough to seize that moment. 
I think, yeah, I think there is an element of that. You've got to make the most of it. You've got it. Uh, and, and I'll give you a classic example of that is when I first did uh, the lottery. I didn't, I wasn't there from the start. People think I was, but I wasn't. I came in about six months in. Mm. And if you remember, it started off on tour mm. uh, with uh, Anthea, Anthea Turner and uh, a Scottish actor, Gordon Kennedy, who went on to be uh, something in Robin Hood, a, a revival of Robin Hood on, mm. uh, on the television. Uh, both nice people and all the rest of it, yeah. but they they wanted um, they wanted somebody to commentate on the the draws. Now I, I was led to believe I don't know whether it's true, but I was told that uh, Anthea's uh, a tiny little bit dyslexic and was worried, anxious about calling the numbers the wrong way round and that sort of thing. Mm. It's not dysnumerate. I have looked the word up before and I can't remember what it is now, but there is a word for it. Mm -hmm. And so they said, look, you seem to be able to cope with Wogan. Uh, why don't you come and uh, have a go at this? So I did. And of course, what Gordon was doing was calling out the numbers. And he would say, because he was on the set, uh, you know, he would say, uh, it's a white number six, and that sort of thing. Hmm. But when you take the person away from the picture, and you have just somebody commentating uh, on a microphone, much the same way as I'm talking to you right now, I felt you have to zhuzh it up a bit. Hmm. And so I did. Uh, and I started putting together stats, figures about each of the balls, how many times they'd been drawn, that sort of thing. And saying, uh, people thought it was, you know, purely dressing or whatever, but actually it was quite informative because if I'd said to you of one of your numbers drawn three Saturdays ago, you might have missed that. Mm. So I felt it was part of the service that I would go, you know, so that people could go back and say, oh, wait a minute, my number was out three Saturdays. Have I, have I actually won? Yeah. So it was all, it was all, and it, all it was, um, I think Wogan would have said, you were building up your part. You're building up your part, Deadly. What's the matter with you? Um, and in a way, he was absolutely right, of course. But I was trying to just make it slightly more showbiz, uh, make it interesting, because it was, you know, a, a television moment yes. in many ways. And for many people of, of various types, it doesn't have to be the, the jackpot winner, but for many people, it was life-changing. Uh, mm. You know, suddenly a lot of money was going to drift uh, into your bank account so you know it was uh, and it was live and that was the thing yeah and, and i've been so lucky to do a lot of live stuff uh, with all sorts of people all sorts of programs over the years and it was partly because of working with wogan again i owe that man so much because um the people at the time uh, who were producing and directing the lottery said we need somebody who can cope with rapidly changing scenarios and, and, and things being thrown at him. And they said, what about that bloke who does work mm. <laughs> in the morning? He seems, uh, you know, able to, co to cope with anything. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, yes, I did shush it up a bit. Um, so I did make my own luck uh, and I held on to it uh, for, well, it's still going, but it's 20 odd years now. Twenty. Yeah. They've celebrated 25 years. So I must have done it for about, uh, yeah most of those years <laughs> yeah i i did the very very first uh live lottery the noel edmonds special and i, oh, yes. was no, I wasn't in that i wasn't in that but uh... no uh, i uh, then did that first series with uh anthea turner and gordon kennedy yeah uh, i didn't go on the road with them but right. uh, I, I kind of pushed words around the page and, and offered those words for them to say and it was very apparent in those first couple of weeks that series Tony Wolf produced actually yeah. uh, the great Tony Wolf that during the ball drop there was that dead air when yes. the white number six fell and it rolled along and then there yes. was there was a, what seemed like an eternity until the next ball dropped so what you, you came along and filled that dead air with stats now 
Am I right in saying that you actually compiled the statistics of the of the the history of the ball uh, balls draws? Yes. <laughs> Whatever <Yes>. their expression. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yes, I did because I I felt that um, you know if if I'd created this and uh, this interest in the, in the stats and the figures. I sort of owed it to the team to actually put those together myself. And also, if you're reading these things out to, you know, eight, nine, ten million people uh, of a Saturday night, I want, I want to do it with conviction, knowing mm. that the, 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 the information is correct. Yeah. Um, so I just looked it up myself. And in a way, all I was doing was, was updating just a few numbers each week. But equally, you've got to look at each one and say, you, you, it's like being a football commentator, really. You just imagine if that ball came out, what would you say? And so, you know, that's what I did. And I'll give you a, a, one of the trade secrets because we don't do it in quite the same way these days. Doing was looking at a uh, sheet of A4 paper with 49 lines on it, as it was in those days, 59 balls now, but 49 then. And I just mm. read out, I put, ran my finger down the sheet and read it out. But I gave myself the extra time to do that by spotting it. Um, but you, you correctly identified the fact that what happened is that the ball rolled along and that's when there was the dead air that we were talking about but actually i'd spotted that what happens is the ball drops directly down mm. then it rolls sideways uh, for about those two or three seconds so i thought if i see it at the point where it drops i can then say the number and i've then got two or three seconds to give the information and then all i've got to do is go look back up again to the machine and see what the next one is and so i've got all this sorted out in my mind uh, as to how i was going to do it I, when i was asked to do it and being appointed and all the rest of it what i did was i looked closely at the tapes of the shows to see how it all worked and all the rest of it and and over the years you know i was unbelievably grateful to the cameramen on that mm. show because they were my eyes you know they mm. were they were seeing it for me and I, I i i just as new people came along on the cameras i just went took them to one side and said look what I'm looking for is the very first drop. I'm not, I don't care what happens to it after that. You can do what you like with it. It, it rolls, whatever, because I'm talking at that point mm -hmm. uh, and not necessarily looking at the machine. There's no point. It's going gonna, it's gonna to deliver them anyway, and they roll mm -hmm. forward. So, yeah, so I spotted exactly that, well, the, the, the thing you picked up about them rolling side. Of, I needed, that was the time I needed to fill, and so I, so I gave it some, uh, some, some information. I've levered a little bit of information about each of the 49 balls. I also, from time to time, put in some facts and stats mm. about where the money went, uh, the, mm. the good causes. Um, so, so we changed it. As time went on, it evolved. That mm. was the thing. But, uh, yeah, so, so I, yes, I'm, I'm, I, I claim responsibility, if not the guilt attached to doing that in that particular way. So uh, blame uh, me, if you like. No, you, you, yeah, <laughs> I think you're being a little blasé. on myself. Yeah, I think so, because I, I would watch the lotto, having I've worked on the show, as you know, and I would watch Absolutely. the monitor, and by the time that ball had settled, and I had thought to myself, oh, is that a six or a nine? Yeah. Oh, but you know, the, the next, you, you've said 16 sentences and, and yes, the next ball has right. dropped. So right. w those anomalies like the sixes and the nines, and I want to say the yes. ones and the sevens, how, how tough were they to spot at speed? They're pretty, yeah, it, it was difficult. I think in the 20 some odd years that we did them actually live and I was there live hmm. and speaking and all the rest of it, I think I called them wrongly twice. I think it was twice. One was on an OB, an outside broadcast, where the monitor I was looking at was much smaller 
than the. I mean, if you if you visited me in my little booth uh, at Television Centre as it was in those days, I had a massive monitor there, so I could see it as clearly as possible. Yes. One of the biggest tellies in the world. <laughs> but we were out on the road, and I, I I did call them incorrectly, and we had all sorts of. We had a little bit of a graphic uh, hiccup with them as well because we hadn't thought, what if I did call them out the wrong way round? And uh, you know, you, you'd be you need to go back along those graphics. But I just spoke my way through it. I said, you know ignore what's on the screen the numbers are these and mm. uh, and again you know the old trustworthy yeah uh, bluffing my way through it got away with it but it, it was it was, just, it was the whole thing was a, a learning curve for many mm. many years that show uh, but it was um, that's one of the risks in a way of doing live television or live radio every now and again it bites you in the bum yes um, but it's your job to either talk your way out of it or explain what has gone on, really? But I mean, some of the numbers were a little easier. You couldn't have um, O one and ten confused because the ten was blue, ah, and the one, and the one was white. Yes, but it was the, it was those single numbers were a pain, and the O six and the O nine. So you just mm. get used to spotting where the zero is. Yes. So that's always going to be your first digit on a white ball, yes. and then you see what the next one is. So I was sort of craning my neck backwards and forwards and upside sure. down and uh, looking at these television things. Uh, and I don't think you could have shown that on on live TV. You would have been amused by it anyway. But uh, again, some of the things is one of the things you learn, isn't it, as you go along? On the rare occasions that you you took yourself off on holiday and uh, missed a couple of lotteries, Charles Nove, our mutual friend, the great Charles Nove, sat in for you. And I remember Charles saying to me. Uh, that he had to go to John Willem, the legendary drawmaster, <laughs> yes, and say to the John, the very first drawmaster, yeah. yeah, please, can I look at the balls? Yeah, and and John Willem was was rather sniffy and said, <laughs> um, no, and Charles said, in fact, he said it like that. He said, <laughs> and Charles said, no, I really like to see them because it would make me feel better. Yeah, uh, and Charles said to me, he said, just seeing them physically made all the difference. Yes, wonderful. Well, he's, uh, he's, he's uh, Charles. Totally good operator, brilliant operator. So, and and the main thing for me was somebody I could trust ah. uh, to come in and do it because there's no point putting in a deputy or asking somebody to do it for you or the whatever, and then it going wrong. So I needed somebody who I knew would totally do it properly. Mm. And and yeah, I mean one or two people may have spotted certainly on the, on the first few that uh, that Charles did. You know, he would take his time over it. Absolutely the right thing to do because you don't want to mess it up. Uh, and so, yeah, so um, he did me a huge favour there. I felt very happy then to go away and take a break because I think yeah. it was quite a few years in before I actually took any time off. Mm. And uh, I'm, I'm generally not uh, ill that often, I have to say. And But every now and again, you get a sniffle or a cold. And I don't like to inflict that upon anybody. So, um, And also, to be honest, Carl, you don't have to look desperate. It's not good. It's not a good. It's not a pleasing look. That looking desperate. To people. <laughs> I mean, only you and I know that I was desperate to, to do it every week. But I don't want the world knowing that, which is why I'm confiding sure. in you today. Well, yes, between ourselves, I'm intrigued by experienced performers and nerves. Did you ever get nervous before a, a lottery draw, or did you ever get? Do, do you still get nervous before an announcing job, be it corporate? Or yes, I don't think I've ever not been nervous because I don't want to mess it up. Hmm. Uh, and I don't want to be on the uh, radio equivalent of it'll be all right on the night or anything like that. Hmm. I mean, there have been uh, there have been moments, uh, hairy moments, undoubtedly on that show. And again, it's one of the risks of doing it live. Uh, but I did both of the draws on Millennium Night as we went from into the year 2000 from 1999. Hmm. Uh, and that was both of those draws were, were slightly wonky and didn't go quite according to plan. 
Yes, that's <laughs> right. Didn't the, remember um, those? Yeah. Didn't the <laughs> didn't the doors not open correctly or fully yeah, the, on the machine? On one that's of the right. The, the, there were two. There was a big screen, a big a big TV screen that was being used by Peter Snow to tell us all about what was going to happen with. Do you remember year Y two K as it was called? As yes. we went from. 1999 into the year 2000, uh, the planes were going to drop from the sky and all sorts of stuff. Nothing really happened, mm -hmm. to be honest. One or two computers uh, did play up a little bit, but nothing major. And he was explaining all this on a big TV screen, which was meant to split in half, two halves to it, which you didn't see on, on the television, but you know, when, it, when it split in half and it would reveal the machine behind it. But... John Snow was, uh, Peter Snow rather, was using one of those uh, clickers that the weather forecasters use and just placed it down on the set. No reason why he should uh, worry about that. But the, the wire on the, on the clicker got caught underneath one of the two screens <laughs> so they wouldn't part properly. So the, the, the machine was actually almost totally in the dark. Uh, and I think they cranked the cameras up so that I could see something at least. <laughs> so uh, there was I trying to get uh, trying to get uh, Dale and Barbara Windsor up to the draw machine. I've got a director in one ear because I, I, I wear a pair of headphones when I do it, and um, I hear myself in one ear. Always a good list. Mm -hmm. and, and in the <laughs> other ear, in the other ear, I've got this director saying, "You know, we're running late. We're running late. Quickly, get them up to the because we, we're heading up towards midnight at this point. It's about half eleven, mm. and of course, at midnight you want to do special things." Um, so anyway, we, we we got there in the end, and we did we did both draws. But um, again, you know, liveness. Uh, and the other thing we had, uh, Colin, uh, just to tell you briefly about, and you might want to talk about it a bit more later. But um, I, I still relive some of these moments in my dreams or nightmares, as we call them. But I don't know if you remember it. We had we had an invasion by the Fathers for Justice people, who we you know were making a, a bit of a protest, and they'd done them in various places. One of the places they chose, though. Um, was uh, our studio, and uh, it was all kicking off uh, with Sarah Kaywood and Eamon Holmes um, oh, in the studio. Uh, and um, it was Eurovision night, and what has to happen on Eurovision night is that the Eurovision Song Contest right across Europe has to start at 8 o'clock, 20 00 So you've got this thundering great show about to start. And at, uh, at three minutes to eight, uh, the drawers start to go wrong. <laughs> and um, cutting a long story short, though, please do enjoy it on YouTube, if you will. Uh, it was, it's me, a caption, and about eight, nine or ten million people all waiting for the Eurovision Song Contest. And I do wish, I remember it now, Daz Sampson um, was in Athens, I think it was, and I was wishing him and Terry Wogan well. I did everything that I could think of. But again, again, experience there, Colin, told yes. me, don't Keep talking. Just every now and again, pause. If you if you blow all your material in one go, um, then you will just dry up. So I just tried to take in what was happening in the studio in case I could hand back to Eamon. Uh, but all I could hear from the studio side of things was, "We need more security. We need more security." <laughs> <laughs> Which I couldn't. I didn't think I should pass that on to the viewer at home myself. But I just went through all the figures about, you know, how much was at stake on the drawers and all that sort of stuff. And uh, and, and we got them in in the end, to be honest. We got them in just before eight o'clock. So so the, the TV people at BBC One were very pleased with us that night. And, and quite right, too. And this is why you are the voice of the balls. Do you remember when a streaker invaded the, the lottery studio? <laughs> yes, I think there have been a couple of occasions uh, when streakers uh, have invaded the studio. One of them 
was on the, the television, the other the other person uh, chose the wrong time to do it when we were listening to Mystic Meg. Mystic Meg. <laughs> and I remember, um, <clears throat> I remember vividly what we heard was clump, 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 as this naked man trundled down the, the steps of the yes. audience rostra. They, you remember, they used, to, they used to rattle and shake when everybody yes. oh, God, yes, trod yes, on them. Didn't they? Uh, yeah. and, and he had, someone had biorode on his buttocks, pick my balls, <laughs> some sort of rather witty expression to use on the lotto. And I, yes. I think it was the great Bobby Bragg and Quentin oh. that wrestled him uh, away from the cameras, so the cameras didn't pick him up. Meg, who is in midst of this week's lottery will be won by a man or a woman, those kinds yes. of prognostications yes, yes. that she brilliantly made absolutely do you know she didn't miss a beat she didn't blink and i like she, to think yeah. alan what a I pro like to, there's, and there's a reason for that i think she knew it was going to happen <laughs> <laughs> and top script writers will be celebrating too <laughs> yes yes do you remember she, she put to... that in <laughs> yes she's, she's very good at all but, oh do you know and again it was just a little bit of the magic you know don't take it too seriously folks whatever you do yeah uh, anything that you see on television is it's not that important it's mm. it's meant to be fun yes so uh, just see it as that and you'll you'll enjoy your television so much more <laughs> you remember that's when we first met in person was when bob was hosting the lottery and they were great little saturday night variety shows weren't they yes they were they were i used to come into the uh, into the dressing room which i hadn't done before with with the presenters because i didn't feel that i that i should but i felt bit of a bond with with bob and the fact that as i say we were we were exploiting the liveness of it all and mm. of course he had he had one of the magical moments when the machine wouldn't start yes and uh, i'd gone through the whole sequence of uh, we, we rehearse for these things when they happen and i'd gone through all my stuff and uh, he was very good he just he just repeated what i said but in a comic fashion yes in a beautiful way and and then uh, the amazing thing about it was that he then, we had to go to Casualty next on BBC One. Uh, and the arrangement was that once the next programme had gone out, we'd come back, if everything was okay, and, and do the draw, which, which is exactly what we did do. Mm. But actually, um, we should have broadcast what Bob did. He did a full show. Yes, he, he did. did. He, he did a, a, great, a great set uh, for the people in the audience uh, who were in fits anyway, because mm. he, he dealt with it in such a... Uh, a fantastic way and uh, and the producers um it was peter estel i think it was peter days, I think. it was um uh, you know uh, one of the best um producers well he used to produce wogan the tv series and, mm. all, and all sorts of other things um but uh they were so grateful to him because, and the, the audience went home uh, you know uh, having had such a great value for money night out of complete routine from yes. Bob Munkhaus and the machine going wrong and all the rest of it. I mean, 90% of the time in my life generally, I think, if everything goes according to plan, you shouldn't notice me. You should, you should, you should be listening to the news. I'll read you the news and I'll do all that sort of stuff. Mm. But you shouldn't notice that I'm there. But every now and again, something does happen and you really do then earn your corn. But then you have to because that's why you're there. That's precisely why you're there. So in a way, to answer your question, which was probably about 20 minutes ago, I do get slightly nervous. Yeah, I do. And, and I think I'm told that if you don't, there's something wrong with you. But it does, you've got to have that little bit of edge uh, to make sure you get everything right, because the aim is to get everything right. And you don't want to feature in some sort of cock-ups program, because that's not exactly uh, good yeah. for, the, for the old career. Mm. But um, yeah, so, so ever so slightly on edge all the time, because... When you're live, 
going through my mind and, and my radio training taught me this in a way over the years you should always be thinking what if what if what if and I, I, I do a little bit of training every now and again of, of people who are coming into the business because I want to put a little bit of something back. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the main, there, there are two main things I tell them. One of them is be yourself because the minute you're not yourself, it will be revealed because there'll be a momentary lapse of concentration uh, uh, and you're there you are revealed as someone you're not really anyway. Mm-hmm. And the other is just be prepared. So I might be sitting at Radio 2 putting out a programme in the evening, say, uh, coming off a computer, uh, a, a program that people are tuning in to listen to and value and love and cherish. And I just want it to go out properly. So I will sit there and think, well, what if this? What if this suddenly stopped? What if the power failed? What if I was asked to leave the studio for an evacuation or something like that? And some people, I know some people who just don't think of those things. If you're, if you're at the end of an outside broadcast uh, and it's going through Radio 2, Friday night is music night, say, coming from wherever, um, the Symphony Hall in Birmingham. What if somebody rang the Symphony Hall and said, oh, there's a bomb in your studio and all that sort of stuff, bomb in your, your, your concert hall. Well, they're going to have to leave and you're going to have to do something about it. So I was forever asking um, the people who prepared Radio 2's programmes in the evening. I'd say, can I have something to back this up in case, you know, they have to evacuate the venue? And it hadn't occurred to a lot of people. Mm. Never did, because they thought everything went perfectly. Can't always guarantee that. It can't always guarantee that. I'm a great believer in Sod's Law. I don't know about you, but I, I think Sod's Law is that if you've thought about it, it's fine. It'll go perfectly. But if you haven't thought about it, again, the expression I use yep. bites you in the bum. Sure. And it does. It does. And, th- and that was the case, really, when, when the lottery machine broke down. Uh, when you and and Bob covered for it. I remember the week before Peter Estel coming into Bob's dressing room and saying to us, uh, gentlemen, he said, I really must rehearse uh, a lottery break, a machine breakdown. And Bob said, Peter, it'll never happen. And I said, it's never going to happen, Peter. And Peter said, I know it's never going to happen, but Camelot are on my on my back, they, they, they want to rehearse <laughs> yes, a yes. lottery machine breakdown. So we tried, oh, Bob, you know, Bob, how biddable, and he loved Peter Estel, and how uh, yeah. biddable Bob was, and he went out and rehearsed this, this lottery breakdown, and everybody said, well, it's never going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> and what happened the next yeah. week? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, that's what they said, that's what they said about um, a double rollover. Now, they'd worked out the stats that it couldn't happen, you know, it'll be another three, three or four years before this happens again. Mm. Two weeks later, in the very early stages, we had a double roller. Yes, of course. And what I used to love was, and certainly on when the machine broke down, was Meg's face, Mystic Meg's face. <laughs> that look of, and she actually said, I told you. <laughs> that was just, <laughs> hil- <laughs> just <Yes>. hilarious. <laughs> she was fabulous. When Bob joined the lottery, the producer was Mark Wells. And yes. so I came on board with a, a new variation of the script. And in that first script, spec script, during the weeks running up to Bob's first lottery, I called you ballsy. Yes, yes, um, you did. Actually, um, yeah, Bob right. thought, oh, I like that very much. Yes. I remember Terry, the great Sir Terry Wogan, taking exception to Bob Monkhouse calling <laughs> yes, the voice I of the balls mind. ballsy. Yes, I, do you know, I didn't mind it. I mean, I, it, 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 to call anybody <clears throat> in the vernacular, you know, he's a, a ballsy character. It's, it's a compliment in a way. And also it was, a, it was done with affection and with, mm. without any malice or anything like that. Uh, and it was just different and new. And, and, you know, we did need to breathe new life into the show at that point because it had mm. been going X years. And, 
uh, with lots and lots of different presenters over the years and not that many of them regular. That was the thing. We had loads of, we had about, I think it was about 150 in total, uh, different presenters who'd said, welcome to the National Lottery, uh, including Brucey and, and and all sorts of characters that had a bit of a go at it, undoubtedly. Mm. Bradley, if I remember um, rightly. Yeah, Bradders, Bradders filled, filled venues right across the country. We took the show on the road one summer. Uh, and in some of the theatres, that's all we were going to do is the draw itself. But he still managed to fill the theatre. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. But Bob, yeah, Bob was was Bob was different again. And I, a huge amounts of admiration uh, for that man. I know I know people had various thoughts about him and all the rest of it. But he was just to me a perfect gentleman. As I say, I, I learned so much. He cared about what the show sounded like, what it looked like, and all that sort of stuff. And he would exploit mm. the least little thing. And up until that point. Nobody had really done that. It had, it had gone out and it had worked and all the rest of it. But Bob would be so up to date with some of his news stories and all that stuff mm. uh, and squeezing in references to stuff that had happened either in the world of sport or in news that very afternoon mm. just to prove it, hammer it home, that, uh, that what we were doing was live. Ballsy, water off a duck's back to me. I, I didn't take it in any way insulting me. And I, I, I thought that was a bit odd that... Uh, Terry took exception to that. I don't know whether he, because there is that side of the word ballsy, is that you're gutsy, that you'll do anything and you're brave and all that stuff. He's That's that the way we look character. at it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't think of any other way that you could, Drew. In any, <laughs> uh, in, in any other way, I'd have, I'd have liked it anyway. So, yeah, uh, not a problem to me. But, yeah, a little creation by Bob. Again, put his stamp on the show. Don't mind that. Definitely. And also, Bob wanted to give the show a kind of family atmosphere yeah. uh, all the contributors a little nickname but, but yeah exactly that bob would make fun of all the contributors he'd make fun of the hardware and the furniture of the show yes. if, if it was there for a joke i i think john willen uh, did not rise to the comedic occasion in the way no. that we well, would have preferred he, he, he was the official wasn't he on behalf of mm. the, the the camelot and all the rest of it so i can sort of see it from his point of view he mustn't be seen to be going too far down that line but um but some of the other draw masters did, so it was, and some of the um, the adjudicators did, didn't they? They sort yeah, of played yeah. along with it, Sean and a few others, uh, and that sort of thing. And, and in a way, the ballsy business and, and talking to John Willard, doesn't it come back to the same thing I was saying earlier? Don't take it too seriously. Please yes. don't take it too seriously, because, you know, I've always borne in mind the fact that, yes, it's important to me. It pays my mortgage, Carl. pays yes. my mortgage. But um, the thing is, it's... It's not that important. We, you know, it's not. It's not the be all and end all of life. Um, I'm. I was on the periphery of most people's lives. I was on the, on the in the background on the radio, uh, and they were really just wanted in the end, whatever we were doing. In the end, what they wanted was to know whether they've won mm. X million pounds. They just want to know the numbers of the balls in the end. But um, yeah, some people do take it a little too seriously. But most importantly, as well, I think you were part. You became part of the what I call the fabric of the nation, with your involvement on Wake Up to Wogan, because you are oh. part of Terry's family. Yeah, well, in many ways, to be honest, I was, um, because you know, as as the years went by, we did get uh, we did get quite close, mm. uh, much closer than I've got to any other celebrity uh, that I've ever worked with. Uh, an odd word that really we've gone down this the cult of celebrity and all that business yeah. but um, they're not all some of they're so different some of the celebrities I and mean, you've met a lot um, most most are approachable and fine and, and 
all the rest of it, but some of them believe their own publicity yeah. um, some of the time. But he was just such a nice guy. And yes, you would. Um, <clears throat> he had people round for lunch on Monday was always his family time. And that was so important to him, the family. The family is so important. I've never seen that in anyone else mm. to the same degree as with, with the Wogan family. And if they didn't, uh, you know, if the boys or Catherine um, weren't there on a Sunday, he'd want to know why. Um, mm. He wanted them around the family. He wanted his grandchildren around and all that sort of stuff. And what a lovely thing that was. But people who'd worked with him, um, he wanted on the Saturday, every now, just every now and again, three, four, five times across the summer. And, you know, you, had, you were served the absolute best of things in terms of what was on the menu and on the table. Um, it was a big, large banqueting table, Terry at one end, Lady Helen at the other. Terry would be holding court and telling all the jokes and gags. Mm. Helen would tell you where the food came from and why she'd chosen it to be on the menu. She did a lot of the preparation of the food herself, but on the day, a couple of flunkies would be around to help you because they wanted to be with their guests. Mm. And you know one of the amazing things about that, and I'm sure the family don't mind me telling you this, but they... Um, and you, pro you must have been to one or two of those, Colin, over the years. I don't know whether you got... Mm, I went to one, yes. You caught you, whether you caught the selector's eye on that occasion. <laughs> but um, but they, you would go and it'd be at this table with about uh, 20 people or so either side with um, the two of them at the, uh, at the far end. Um, but you would, there would only be one or two people from television or radio. Mm. The rest were his friends... Uh, his family, his the doctor who hoovered up the bits of his uh, of the uh, stuff inside his knee when he had to have his knee done, uh, the cartilage and all that stuff that hoovered hoovered all that for him at Northwick Park Hospital, just an inch away from where I am right now. Yes, um, and and his neighbours, his neighbours were there, uh, and you think how fabulous. And in fact, I remember speaking to somebody directly opposite me on one occasion, and I sort of leant over and said, "Just out of interest, how do you know?" You know, Terry. Then oh, he comes round to us every now and again. Um, we own a town in Italy. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> you do what? <laughs> and yeah, they they own a town in Italy. And uh, he he went back. You know, every other year or whatever, always worked in a little bit of a, a little holiday, a little trip to Italy to the town owned by these two lovely people. But uh, I'm, I'm not going to name them or anything. But just to say, that was the sort of caliber, the strange range of guests, the lovely range of guests that were around the table. Uh, I remember getting a telephone call one evening. Uh, Colin, uh, Sir Terry. Uh, no, he said, a friend of mine needs some jokes. He's making a speech. Um, it's a man called Peter Sutherland. So I said, oh, OK, sure. I said, um, what does he do? He said, well, he's... He's the chairman of BP, and he's the financial advisor to the Vatican. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and he was a friend of Terry's. He's phoned God. up Terry and yes. said, I need a few gags. I've, can yeah. you put me in touch with somebody? And I, I had oh. a very interesting relationship with Sir Peter Sutherland for, for a couple of years when he was making yeah. these, these yeah. grand speeches to these great crowds and after dinner speaking and stuff. <laughs> but that was the, the standard of, of friends that... that Terry could master. Yes. He, he, he could, and you were made to feel friends with him mm. and his family and all the rest of it. And he did value your friendship and was, was very good fun. Uh, we had some great lunches um, here, there, and everywhere. Even his, um, even his club, the Garrick. Uh, we used to go there, and uh, the likes of Michael Parkinson would suddenly invite, ask you, "What do you want to drink?" Yeah, <laughs> and you think, oh, "Me? Do you mean me?" 
Yes. Uh, well, you know, I was a little bit, uh, I, can, I must confess, Colin, I was a little bit starstruck, you know, there. I, looked at it, I thought, wow. Hmm. Uh, you don't, it doesn't happen very often, doesn't it? Not to me anyway. Probably well, does to you. Probably well, does no, to you. Yeah. Oddly enough, no. But uh, th- well, those, the, w- I'm inclined to agree with you there. So, yes, I shan't dispute that. Absolutely. But those Wogan shows, they were, they were Lynn Bowles, Your oh. Good Self, uh, Boggy Marsh. That was the great thing. He had a nickname for all of you, didn't he? Yes, he did. He did. He did. Uh, it was, uh, Lynn Bowles was the, she was the Totty from Splotty. Yes. Uh, yourself was, uh, I was a Deadly, deadly. Alan Coat. Deadly. Silent but deadly. Absolutely. Bus crasher Chaz. Oh, he gosh, had a, he, had a, he had a bit of a crash, didn't he? He sort of bumped into another vehicle, but his bus crash, yeah, bus crash of Chaz was on and uh, people like that. Yeah, yeah, he was just, he was unbelievably generous to the people who worked with him as well because if you came up with a, a funny line or, or something that was, I'm not saying you're trying to top anybody, but he came out with a nice funny line, you'd go straight to the music mm. um, because, you know, whereas a lot of other people would want to either tell you to shut up or top the gag or whatever. He never bothered with that. He just said, he just laughed. Mm. We just we had great fun on those shows, but yeah, there were there were, there were a few of us. I mean, I think it was about half a dozen when we started. Uh, when he came back from television, that's when all this kicked off. The wake up to Wogan, mm. uh, once he'd done television for a few years, and you know, a lot of people were saying at the time, "You're foolish to go back. It's like stepping back in time. You're 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 it's retrograde step to go to go back to the radio." But my goodness, was it wasn't it the right thing to do? He was still on form. He'd still got it. Uh, and and right to when he finished doing you know the weekday show um, he was he was on fine form. He wanted to go because he didn't want to he didn't want to carry on to the point where you know they were having to ask him to leave or anything like. That. He was on a high. The figures were phenomenal. Yes, and he just felt that uh, you know he'd done it for so many years, and uh, he wanted to end on top. And uh, boy, mm. did he do! I did say to him once, I, if you weren't doing the breakfast show would you get up just as early? And he said, are you mad? He said, of course no, I wouldn't. <laughs> no, he wouldn't. No, he had, a, he had a certain time. I think, it was, I think it was something like six o'clock. He would never get up before six, uh, whatever they asked him to do. And uh, there were times when that policy of his um, caused a few problems. We sometimes had him on the phone on the A40 coming in from where he did, not far from Maidenhead. But, uh, which were, and again, again. Great for it. Great comedy. Great fun. And uh, he'd be chuckling. And you could hear him chuckling in the back of the car mm. and telling Dennis, his driver, come on, Dennis, we've got the show to do. Come on. And all that sort of yes. stuff. I'm sure Dennis had parked up to him quite deliberately, to be honest. It was, but it was great <laughs> comedy. Great comedy. On the a couple of occasions I've wandered in to see our mutual friend Ken Bruce oh. uh, when I've been in the area, when yes. Ken's been on air. Uh, what I'm surprised at, purely behind the scenes, is actually how... Lonely is the wrong word, but in the studio, there's just Ken. And it's a yes. big old, you know that studio better than anybody. There's yes, just there Ken <clears throat> by yeah. himself. And it was Ricky, his producer, and, yeah. uh, and Ricky's assistant, Susie Dietrich. And it was, you think, wow, this is very quiet, very yes. relaxed, very empty. And yes. yet they're entertaining half the nation. Yes. It's not as bustly and as busy no. uh, as one expects it to be. No, radio, radio is like that. Radio is, you know, small is beautiful. Radio is tiny in that respect. And the joy, the joy of radio in many ways is that you, didn't, you don't have to dress up. You don't have to shave. 
Um, and you perform. I, I used to think of uh, being on a on a kitchen windowsill, to be honest, coming out of a radio there and at a, a little group of family or grab family that I'm trying to appeal to, trying to attract their attention, that sort of thing. So it's images in the head, really. Candy is absolutely brilliant, and and and, and uh, during this the business of the pandemic uh, that we've had recently, you know, the business he he's been doing it from home because they you know. People mixing is not the right thing to do. So they've given him bits of equipment, just a, a bit of microphone and a few wires, and he does it from home. And you cannot tell. Mm. You cannot tell. Because it doesn't matter. He's he's talking directly to you and at you. Um, you don't need to see all the paraphernalia. We all remember it from, you know, we've seen it before. Eddie Shoestring, all that sort of stuff. We've seen a radio studio before. Mm. Television. Um, and I could never quite get used to that. Uh, television you can't you're not as free to do stuff with television because you've got to tell the director what you're going to do next the cameramen have to be told what to look at uh, and all that sort of stuff and, it, and it's it's just too big mind you the budgets are big so it's not a bad thing but it's too big and cumbersome television radio beautiful one morning he came in um rather nice pink cardi on and uh we said uh terry what uh Oh, I meant, sorry, I, I got up in the dark. It's Helen's cardigan I brought on and all that. So he just hadn't noticed. He'd grabbed something, thought it was, thought it was pullover or something, uh, and had come in with, uh, with Helen's cardigan on because he got dressed in the dark. So, <laughs> so it's not to wait. So it's not to, to wake up uh, Lady Helen. But, yeah, it was a lovely, lovely story. But, yeah, you, you just didn't have to worry about all of that. Radio is very immediate, very personal, very small, uh, and, and it works all the better for that reason and the joy for me if you're talking about the difference between radio and television is that as a listener it's different because you can do so much more with the radio on mm. but television demands your attention you've got to look at it mm. um, and on, on things like news for example i i hate the fact uh, and i've got loads of friends in television news i have to say but i hate the fact that they decide what stories i see on the tv news on the bbc news at 10 with hugh edwards they choose the stories according to whether they've got pictures for them. And that, to me, that's wrong. Mm. I, I, I listen, uh, and, and I always have done, I listen to the midnight news when I'm not on, a, not on an early shift or whatever. But I listen to the midnight news because between midnight and midnight 30, half an hour of the day's news chosen according to the importance of the stories. Mm. And to me, that is so important. And I, I don't think people who watch television news realise that sometimes if they haven't got pictures to illustrate it, they won't run the story, which is why we get, you know, if, you, if there's a housing story, you get loads of houses on, on your picture. They've mm. got to associate because it's deemed, you know, we're only, some of us are only paying half attention. So to get our attention, they'll show us a house to show we're now going to talk about a house. Yes. Uh, whereas radio doesn't have to do that. Radio is just beautiful for its simplicity. And a very good point you make, because I've noticed by and large on the news, they will tailor their report to the image. For example, uh, they'll have a shot of a train leaving a railway station and the reporter will say, and let's hope the government policy is not derailed on the way. And you think, <laughs> oh, get off. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, yes. shut your uh, face. As a writer, you would speak, because they would have written that particularly for the pictures. So, yes, you would have... You, you would pick that up. I don't know whether everybody would pick that up, but uh, I, I, there are lots of those things that I do mm. smile at each yeah. night where I think, oh, I know you've engineered that line yes. just for that picture. Yes, it, it glistens with sweat, but it doesn't sing, as Bob used to say. <laughs> yeah, nicely put, nicely put. 
Um, you, you, you talked about your voice uh, yes. early on and not wanting to work with a cold and stuff like that. D do you do anything to protect your voice? Do you gargle? Do you eat certain things? Mm. Have you got a regime which actually protects you your vocal muscle? What are, you, what, are you, what are you offering me? I, I'm just intrigued. I've got some strepsils. If they're, if they're. <laughs> <laughs> I do use those occasionally, actually. Um, no, not really. I, because we've been talking for quite a long while, and those who are listening closely with headphones on, you may have heard me just, I was just uh, getting some water and I've had a cup of coffee and stuff like that. So I do have to keep it lubricated, mm. uh, the old larynx. Uh, but generally, no, it, I, I abuse it a bit, Colin, I'm afraid. It's, you get a voice like this from years of chest infections and red wine. <laughs> I think you'll find um, I don't really I, I haven't got it insured people ask if you got it insured I haven't I haven't um, and in fact of course typically American I, do, I also do apart from Strictly I also do the American version Dancing mm. with the Stars and I've done a few interviews with their radio and TV stations over the years and that's one of the things typically American if you got that voice insured mm. you know because we're not totally obsessed with money over here and so, <laughs> no I didn't say that but um no, I haven't got. I don't know whether it would be. It would cost a fair bit. I would have thought to insure it anyway. But um, you, I blunder my I blunder my way through life, Colin. I don't. I mean, I, I don't take risks with it necessarily. And and you know, I won't uh, get hammered the night before. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, a live show. And if you were doing the earlies, you were pretty well out of commission for that whole week for your friends and family and all that stuff. So you had to be. Uh, to be careful with it, I sure. think that's the best thing. I want to get on to Strictly in a minute, but you've just reminded me of something, and, and um, I'm, I'm minded of your, I want to say consumer professional approach, because you drive a certain car, and I said, I didn't expect you to drive that car, and you said, no, but it's a good starter. Yes. These Fords are good starters. Yeah, and I thought, a Ford. Wow, that's interesting. So <laughs> yeah. getting up at four o'clock for the early shift... On yeah. a on a damp, maybe snowy winter's morning, Friday. Yeah. I've always stuck with them. I've always stuck with them because they're and I, and I read it anyway. I've read it since uh, from from owners of Fords, uh, and it's a, it's a humble little vehicle. Uh, you know, it's not the world's biggest because I, it was only me. Mm. But um, its early morning cold start is brilliant, and uh, I've done I've done breakfasts. In Birmingham, I could walk to Pebble Mill. It's where I first started, uh, so I could walk in to do breakfast there. But in Devon, I, I used to live on the outskirts of Exeter, um, in the wilds where the frosts were fairly hard, if you had them. I mean, they don't always have them, but when they do, and they get heavy snow every now and again. Um, and I've always found that, yeah, it's, it's one of the considerations you have to take and make, uh, and that is that, uh, you know, you need to be able to get in to work yeah. at about 4 a.m. You get up at 4, out at 4.30, in for 5, 5.30, something like that. The times varied slightly uh, over the years. I, I, I um, felt that fascinating. The fact that yeah, you it's built your one car of the tricks of the trade. Tricks of the trade. Yeah. yeah. Tricks. <laughs> so, tricks of the trade. So how did you start? What, what, okay. How did you, f where did you first realise, hmm, I'd like to be a broadcaster? People were telling me, um, You've got a, your voice sounds very nice. Now, like everybody else, when I hear myself through headphones or on loudspeakers, I don't. I personally don't like it. Mm. But uh, and I can. It, to me, it sounds slightly flat. 
However, I've been told off over the years for sounding too enthusiastic about sad stories. So, um, so I, I, I perhaps overcompensate at times. I don't know. Part of the enthusiasm, you see, worked well for the lottery by you know sounding very excited about the fact that somebody was about to be uh, about to be very rich. I did a bit of hospital radio following those sort of disclosures. I thought I'll have a little go at this and see what mm. it's like. And what I'd done as a kid anyway, um, I remember doing it. I don't know that this was foretelling the future. I don't know. But I used to play around with um, tape recorders and things. My One of my brothers had a, what was called, and um, aficionados will recognize this, a Grundig TK-18 uh, with piano key controls. It was fabulous. And I loved it. And I used to read the news onto that. And you think, well, I don't know what told me to do that. I have no idea. But then... 20, 30 years later, I was actually doing it. Um, so it's a very, very odd story. I was, I was originally um, going to be a lawyer. That was the, uh, do you know why, Col? Because I wanted, I wanted, I put it to you, my lad. I wanted the wig, I wanted the wig and the gown. But um, somewhere along the line, um, I did this hospital radio and people said, yeah, it's very good. So I, I, I just, I took a gamble and I wrote to the BBC and, uh, at Pebble Mill and said, you know, what are the chances of, of trying out a job, uh, coming along and talking about it? And um, somebody, a senior producer called Celia Marks, uh, who I still see from time to time, but she wrote back to me saying, how opportune that you should write at this time. And I thought any organisation that works in the word opportune into a sentence in a letter back has got to be worth joining. And I've still got it. I've, I've, I've had it framed over the years and all that stuff and uh, put it up in the loo. But it was the it was the it was the first invitation. And uh, very bravely, she said, look, we've got somebody called Phil Horner who's joining us from Radio London. He's been doing it for a number of years now and wants to become, you know, join the staff and do it on a more formal basis. But she said, what we'll do with you, because we've got two vacancies, we'll take a gamble with you. And that was enough, Col. That was enough. That was the incentive I needed. I've got to prove it now. Mm. Phil um, decided, he, I think he went off to be a priest uh, in, in about 18 months, two years after I joined. Um, but it just made me go on and on. I thought, I must, I've got to prove it to them that they made the right decision. And so I've always felt like the underdog mm. <laughs> and uh, that I've got something to prove. And I just worked worked very hard at it. So I was at Pebble Mill for a couple of years as what was called a station assistant, making coffee, cleaning the record styluses on gramophone players. Nobody under 30 will know what the hell I'm talking wow. about. But, uh, yeah, that's what I used to do because uh, there were producers who wanted that done when they were recording a show and uh, they didn't want to be cleaning fluff off the needle halfway yeah. through their programme. Um, so I did all of that and I made coffee and I drove the sports programme and all that stuff. And, and I'm in many ways, um, and I've said this before at, uh, at training sessions, I'm so glad that I learned my trade from the very bottom and worked my way up, learning what, why we did things, why, why this worked and why it didn't and all mm. that stuff. And, and, and my career generally has been paced exactly perfectly to fit into a 38, 39, 40-year career. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I've, that's why I've been lucky. I, I, I don't envy kids who come into it now and who want to be it, want to be the star on the radio straight away. Because what are you going to do? What are you going to do for the extra 30 years that you're going to be around? <clears throat> so, you know, you might get on and you might do it, but you've got to find something else to do. And I think 
kids now are told, aren't they? You don't have a career. I wanted a career, but you don't have a career these days. You are told that you will do about five or six jobs during your working life. It's yes. no good to me. I want, to, I, want to, I want the same job. I want it easy. I want to do the same thing and work my way up. Mm. Um, and that's what I did. So I did, I did um, three or four years at uh, Pebble Mill, station assistant and then producer and then presenter of The Breakfast Show. Um, I got tired of getting up very early in the morning when I was at, uh, at uh, Radio Birmingham at Pebble Mill. It became Radio WM, that's what it is now. Um, so I said, yeah, any chance of taking a, you know, a couple of weeks off of doing something else? And the then manager, um, who's no longer with us now anyway, uh, and I won't name him, but he, he, he made me sit in his office making plastic badges uh, for people who visited. Uh, I've been to Radio Brum Club and all that sort of stuff, and I was making these badges. And I think the aim was for me to say, oh, I'm fed up of doing this. I want to go back to my show now. But whilst I was doing that, Radio Devon launched, and that was in 1983, January 83, exactly the same date, actually, as BBC Breakfast started. So they had a bit of television competition on that day. But they launched, and in about two or three weeks of launching, they found that their breakfast show presenter was really having difficulties getting up. It didn't suit him. It didn't suit him to be getting up at that time in the morning. So they, the cry went up. Anybody who's done breakfast before want to come down and do it for Devon for a while? So I did. I went down. I thought, well, it's not a rest. It's not the break I wanted. But I am 20 minutes from the sea, and it's a lovely part of the world. Uh, and, you know, I'm still in love with it now, really. But mm. um, and we still have reunions 30 or 40 years on because it was such a friendly station. So I went off to Devon. Uh, and I was there again about three or four years, something like that. And I, 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 uh, the BBC has this thing, this system called attachments, where if you know of a job and you'd like to have a go at it, you can. You put in for it and, and, and they'll interview you. And if you're suitable for it, they'll appoint you, which is fabulous. Um, but I said, I'd quite like to be a radio announcer. Uh, you know, um, reading the news, introducing the programmes, that sort of thing. I'd had no real experience of that. I'd done local radio. Uh, so I went along for the interview and uh, they, I was appointed. They said, yeah, come along and try it. And I did five months. It's slightly different than the normal sort of period, but five months. And I was put on um, doing overnight news reading shifts, which was pretty killing, I have to say, mm -hmm. um, to go in at about 8, 9, 10 in the evening and then be coming out at 6 in the morning. But it was at a time when great people uh, were on the radio it wasn't wogan hadn't quite come back yet but it was it was it was ray moore oh, one the of great the great yeah. one of the radio greats who painted lovely pictures in words uh, you know with his lovely scouse accent and all that sort of stuff he used to put on and, and jogging jogging on the bog-eyed jog and all that sort of stuff so what used to happen is i'd finish at six go home lie in my digs and uh, I couldn't go to sleep because I wanted to hear Ray Moore doing his show and finishing it and all that stuff. Yes. Um, it was just absolute magic. I was there at a great time. Sure. Um, and I, I remember I was the, one of the shows, I was uh, because it was so gruelling, I was sounding a bit rough. And he said, uh, you're right there, Al. Is the clack back yet? Uh, and I'd never, I'd never heard of it described as that. But he was, he was so caring. He's such a lovely man. But I mean, talking about talking about the radio and, and, and what you can and can't do. He used to, he used to sit down in front of the old microphone. He used to undo his trousers. Mm. Now that was just to release the the old diaphragm and all that stuff and get it all working. But nobody knew that he was sitting there with his trousers mm. half off because yeah. it didn't matter uh, what he was doing. And it was just magical the, uh, the pictures he created. 
And, and Ray needs to be fondly remembered, I think, because I think he yes. was, is, was one of the great broadcasters. Do you remember... Well, my father had a rabbit and he oh, thought yes. it was a duck, so he put yes. it on the table with his yes. legs cocked up. He recorded that, didn't he? A he proper just, record was made. Yeah, absolutely. And you just think, it's just madness, but it was, it was, a, it was a, hit, a hit in its own way, that it, was. Yeah. And, and Ray used to refer to uh, Gatwick Airport as Gatport Airwick. Yes, and that's I, right. And Big Alma was his wife. Yes. Uh, and rather like Terry, he used to, he painted these pictures of this rather whimsical world in which which he lived i yes. I, I loved uh, the man enormously yeah no he, he was i mean he was absolutely brilliant in, uh, and in many ways i would like more people is we should have really put some of those uh, i mean i think some of the shows are in the archive under kept by some of the producers but i wish younger people could have a listen to that uh, and realize you know it's not all about the music it's not all about shouting and mm. saying horrible things and social media it's not about all that it can be just one man creating yes. this magic I, I mean it was one of the few shows television or radio where certainly run radio where i listened for the links i wasn't that interested in the music mm. the music was good it was radio too and it was all programmed by the producer and all that sort of stuff but i was waiting for that record to finish because i wanted to hear what he had to say yes and the great thing about ray was uh, as you do as ken does now as terry did Mm. I always thought he was talking to me. Yes. He, he wasn't talking to the nation. He wasn't, hello, people. No, I, was, I wasn't part of people. No, he was talking to me. And I think, yeah. do you think that's the trick? I think, well, I think it is. Uh, when I was taught, I mean, one of the, one of the great people who taught me uh, um, uh, was James Alexander Gordon. Jag. Um, Jag, old Jaggers. Yeah, he was... Um, he was assigned to look after me. And he always said, avoid saying, you know, hello, everybody, and all that sort of stuff. You're only talking really to one person or my little windowsill, uh, you know, with a few people around the table. You wouldn't say hello, everybody. You'd just say, just say hello yeah. and that sort of thing. But he was uh, he was so good to me. He was the, if people who can't remember necessarily, he was the Scots guy who used to read the football results for many, many years. Mm. Um on uh, on the radio radio two and then radio five live and all that sort of stuff but he was unbelievably generous to me but we had such great laughs in my training period um when you are being trained you as we've said before you have to prepare for anything to happen and it's happened before where people are trying to read the news and somebody sets fire to the script that you're reading and all that sort of stuff what jag did to me he used to wear um caliper affair um because he, I think he's had polio as a kid and, and had been problems. But what he used to do, he used to bend the cali cali caliper backwards, put it over his shoulder and play it like a violin. And I was trying to read the 10 o'clock news. And you're trying desperately not to laugh. And you can't because you can't explain it to the people at home. Uh, and he did that once and he'd, uh, we finished and we just collapsed in laughter once I started the next programme. And he just said, you've passed. Oh. But... Um, such a, such a such a lovely man, and we were great friends. Over the years, you know, I used to go um, to his place because I, I live alone. My family's are up in the uh, up in the Midlands anyway, and I choose to live alone. I love shutting the door on London some nights, so <laughs> I like my privacy. Uh, even though, I mean, I, and, and that is true of 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 of, um, of shyness as well. I'm incredibly shy, but I can do all the showbiz stuff, and I can talk to thousands of people. But I am just a one to one person, but. He used to invite me around, and, and for quite a few years, I used to spend Christmas with, uh, with him and Julia. 
at at Reading Way. I and love you. Think, yeah, and you just think you've got your family, but you actually you spend a bit of time, and they would say, "What do you want for Christmas lunch and all that sort?" Of, and you just think, "How lovely." Isn't that the case then, that, that the great broadcasters like Sir Terry and Ken yeah. and indeed Jag, they, they are not only generous of spirit on the radio to their listener, but they're generous of spirit full stop. That is their yeah. natural disposition. I think it is. I, I think it's, um, you know how sportsmen are very competitive against each other and all the rest of it. Hmm. I think, uh, and it may sound, sound arrogant to say this, but... If you are good at what you do, and I'm not talking about myself necessarily here, although obviously I am brilliant, but the thing is, when you're at the top, you don't have to be, you've no one to beat. And, and all of these people are good at what they do in their own way. They've got their own acts, you know, Ken, great, you know, talking to Jeremy Vine, a lot of the jokes go straight over Jeremy Vine. <laughs> yes! <laughs> um, uh, and he keeps doing it. And, of course, the audience write in saying, yeah, he didn't spot that, did he? No, he didn't. That's the whole point. Uh, and, and, you know, Terry reading out some of the names of people uh, uh, who've given these spoof names, naughty, Mr. Jars, Mr. Hugh Jars, and all that sort of stuff. Um, they, they're just brilliant in their own way. So there's no competition. They don't have to worry about it. They relax, and you get the pure neat Terry Wogan, Ken Bruce, all those sorts of people. Uh, because they're so good at what they do, and they're not—they're not sniping at somebody else. It's, it can be a sort of cat and dog sort of fight in some areas of showbiz. Mm. I think, particularly of comedians. Again, I'm not going to name it, but they—they they, they can be quite competitive that lot. Whereas, whereas I think radio presenters, TV people, are a little bit more relaxed, and it shows when you're you're confident. I mean, you've seen—I've seen Terry and. Um, and, and, and various people he sat with, and they're just so confident, you know? Mm. Uh, uh, Jimmy Tarbuck, I've seen them. I've seen them play golf. I've watched them play golf. And they are at ease with each other. They're not competing. They are just happy people. They've done well. They've worked hard. They've worked mm. hard. Um, but, uh, you know, and Terry, Terry had to work hard to, to get across from Ireland and take a few shows here and all that sort of stuff. Um, mm. But when they've got to the top of their tree... These are people who are at ease with each other. And mercifully, they pass on that friendship, that knowledge, that expertise to the likes of little scruffians like me who come along and say, uh, I like what you do. Can I do it as well? Yeah. Uh, and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and they, they give you the time. I never thought for a minute that I would be trained by someone who'd who I'd listened to on the radio over the years, James Alexander Gordon. Mm. Talking to him, and then and then gathered round a Christmas table with him, um, and he, you know, it was just fantastic. Again, it's luck. It's it, you know that's what it's all about. I've been lucky. I've been lucky. I, you make your own luck, but equally, mm. you you are given such great opportunities. And what you said earlier was too. You take them. You take yeah. them. I, yeah, I'm, I yeah. My work ethic is like I've talked on the podcast about the work ethic, but also. Dumb luck and persistence. <laughs> yes, yes. Don't be put off. I've never had to keep hammering at a door. I, I do take take note when somebody doesn't answer me or answer my email and all that sort of stuff. Um, I resent the fact that uh, I don't like email having appeared on the scene because I quite liked the fact that if you posted a letter, it'd be some days before you got a reply or indeed you had to reply. Yes. Nowadays, people send you an email and they want an instant response. If they haven't heard within three hours, you get a reminder. I sent you this earlier. Did you get it? 
Mm. And you think, well, just calm down, just mm. calm down. Because what I'm doing is I'm thinking about how I'm going to reply to you. Can I help you? Have I got the time? Uh, how are we going to do it? And all that sort of stuff. I have to think about it before I then formulate a reply. But now there's this instant require, reply needed, instant response. I don't do that. I think first. Try it. <laughs> strictly. I will talk about strictly. Oh, because yeah. that is your... Um, you've worked for, oh gosh, 35, 40 years in the industry. Yes. Uh, and you've peaked <laughs> an awful peaked, lot of yeah, times. But yeah, now no, you're really peaking. You're involved well, in just, yeah, the most just, significant light entertainment show uh, on television. Yeah, something comes along and uh, I, I just go for it. it uh, that can't go on forever. And I'm, I am, you know, obviously, unbelievably, I'm getting older. Uh, and also what you have to be aware of, Carl, I don't know, you, you're probably blissfully unaware of this, but there are these young whippersnappers coming up behind us. Oh. Um, claiming to be as good, obviously they're not. Obviously they're not. Clearly, but it's uh, it is uh, it is a worrying situation. But to be honest, you know, I'll sit there, I'll sit here and say this to you and look you in the eyes uh, on this call as we we are talking over the lovely Zoom business, ladies and gentlemen. I can see you. Um, <laughs> I've just I've just. If it all ended tomorrow, I would be perfectly happy anyway, because I have been so lucky and achieved so much I, I mustn't keep saying that but it, but it is true I've achieved so much that's probably a better way of doing it um, and it's all been perfectly timed and all that stuff I say perfectly I didn't plan it I didn't I just took opportunities as I came along um, I yes. would have made more I would have made more money as a lawyer but I've actually made had more fun doing what I've been doing and I and, and I did choose to work for the BBC some of my my voiceover colleagues my friends we don't meet very often uh, because if you've got the job, they ain't there. Mm. Um, but we do. I, I do meet one or two, certainly on train services that go into Marylebone. Uh, I meet one in particular. Mm. Um, and I stuck with the BBC for 30-some-odd years. I've done commercial stuff since, because uh, it's coming off their books in 2015. But I just I quite liked what the BBC did and stood for, because it super serves small audiences. There are various shows. There have been a lot on, on telly recently about canals. I'm not a great canal uh, enthusiast, but I just like the fact that I quite like a holiday where you're just drifting through the countryside at uh, five miles an hour or whatever. But the commercial, commercial television would never do that. Mm. You can't make money out of that. Yeah. And, and that's what the BBC does. It, 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 it does things which are not necessarily going to be commercially massive in our world and i like that fact and i like what the bbc stands for the bbc gets into trouble every now and again um for various reasons but generally there are enough people inside the bbc who care about it enough and there are masses more outside the bbc that care even more mm. about what it stands for so uh, it, it, yeah it comes it comes under a bit of gunfire every now and again but to be honest, if you wait long enough, all that goes round and round and keeps mm -hmm. coming round. It has a rough time, then it's very, doing very well. So don't worry too much about the BBC. But mm. um, it can't go on. It can't go on forever. Yeah. Nothing ever does. Yeah. But its its future will be will evolve. It will it will have a place. Mm. Certainly, that's that would seem a, a natural place to to end this podcast. But I'm not going to grab that for the moment <laughs> because I I, I I I just I need to press you if I may. Oh, I, was just, I was trying to wind that up I, there. I, I thought, could tell, can I, I could say sense that. We'll that. 
because uh, it's nearing. You look, you think, oh, the the the, the, the percolator is getting cold. I need a little more coffee. Uh, right. But I'm going well, we, uh, to be honest. I would. I am more than happy to do another one of these in a few years' time to see where I've got to at that point, uh, mm. if you like. So don't necessarily regard this as the final one. But what 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 what's your what's your what's your parting shot then? My what do you want to know? Shot is what do you want to know, Carl? You're the glue that holds Strictly together. There's no doubt about that. What happened in America? How did you land the American job? Because that is, once again, Dancing with the Stars, the American version yes. of Strictly, yes. is the biggest show on an entertainment show on American television. It so is. So how did you it land is, that? And it is still. Um, I was, again, uh, it's um, getting on with people. Don't upset anybody because, you know, in a couple of years' time, a lift door will open on, from the important floor and out will step one of these people. So mm. don't upset anyone if you can avoid it. Mm. Um, and I was doing Strictly. Well, my role in Strictly, is not, not a, it's not a massive role, but, it, but it's you're the ambassador for the evening. You're introducing the dancers and the dances they're going to do and introducing the judges. So um, it is the glue, and it's not a massively starring role. And But, that's, but I've been so lucky to have kept it for the, the nearly 20 years or so that I've, that, that I've done it from, from the very start. But the Americans started to show interest in, 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 in Strictly after it had been hugely successful two years in and thought, oh, we could, we could do that. Now, ours was based historically on um, a series called Just Come Dancing mm. um, with Charles Nove as the guy who did a sort of commentary uh, and all sorts of things with the likes of Peter West, Terry Wogan, Angela Rippon working on the show. And it was, uh, if you remember, it was Home Counties North, uh, and, and they had numbers on the mm. backs of their outfits. And whoever um, thought of, of, I think it was a number of people in the end, whereby bringing it back and, and, and uh, into the, you know, 20, as it was in those days, 20th century, um, and getting it going was fabulous. I mean, they did really well, uh, and it was a bit of a gamble. The Americans saw it, loved it, um, and they have called it Dancing with the Stars, and that's... Um, Fairly common title around the world now. The format has sold all sorts of places. But they, they wouldn't take Strictly Come Dancing because it just doesn't mean anything to them mm. uh, because they didn't have the Come Dancing show before. So it's Dancing with the Stars. And um, they were trying the formats, trying different things. And they, were, they have, on, on most, as on most American shows, about and, you know half a dozen announcers and voices on them. But they said, um, after a while, they said, there's something not quite right about this show. They said, can we get that British guy? Too right, Colin. Too right you can have that uh, British guy. Uh, and so, uh, and I've been with it ever since. They, um, they've only just started to change a few things on that show. But for the first 15 years, they had um, at least uh, two seasons a year. They had one in March, one in September. So, you know, if we if we've done that here, Strictly would have been on all year long, really. Uh, but that's not quite us. You know, we have seasons of shows and just one a year. And that was what it was. Because, I mean, it's on for three months, strictly. So, you know, building up and doing the show and can survive the pandemic, as we proved. Mm. Um, but, yeah, so uh, can we get that British guy? Uh, and I love the, you know, I'll have nothing said against the Americans. God bless America, I say. Exactly that. I agree with you. Um, thank you very much indeed for your time. I do appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it's where, about where time. I where do I send the invoice? Did you say? Ah, now if you if you address it to uh, Mr. C. Nove, that's yeah, N -O -V yes, indeed at Scala Nove. Radio. 
no no fixed abode yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. no he's doing very good very good business on that scala i have to say he really is he's marvelous he's a dear friend yeah. of both of ours and i haven't seen him in such a long time and i, I after lockdown i haven't seen you in such a long time in person yeah, have I've, you done have you done charles are you going to do charles you must do charles, charles is on the list Charles, so Charles, it should has, be. Charles has had the email and has responded favourably. So I'm, I'm thrilled <laughs> about that. Boy's um, a fool. So could you, can you wind this podcast up for us in some inimitable style? Because, you know, it's about time we had a decent voice on this podcast. <laughs> so, so if you could wrap well, it up for <clears> me, I'd be I don't immensely know. grateful. I, I, what should I, I do my release those big money balls. I do my uh, dancing whatever he wants to dance. Will Colin Edmonds please take to the floor? I think that's probably it, isn't it? That's perfect. Uh, that, that's... A, flurry, a flurry of sequins and off you go. That's going to be my little answer machine. <laughs> Outgoing message. Well, thank, you. thank you very much for your your patience because I know I've rattled. I do rattle on once I get going. No, um, I'm saying. hard to stop and I have a butterfly mind and I keep dancing all over the place. But uh, you've made it very easy. You've covered all the, the aspects I wanted to. Thank you very much indeed, Alan. Uh, thank you for your time. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. Thanks, Alan.